This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 240, April the 2nd, 1991. Otto Scott and I are now going to discuss some books, past and present, which we feel are worthy of attention. I'm going to start off with two books. The first, Herbert L. Sussman, S-U-S-S-M-A-N, Victorians and the Machine, The Literary Response to Technology, published by Harvard in 1968. The other, on a related subject, is Humphrey Jennings, Pandemonium, The Coming of the Machine as Seen by Contemporary Observers, 1660 to 1886 published by the Free Press, the Division of Macmillan, in 1985. The book uh, Pandemonium is a collection of writings by Humphrey Jennings, an Englishman who died fairly young. He was... Uh, a product of the best universities with associations in the best circles involved in a variety of things including film and television who felt that art and industrialism were irreconcilable enemies and as a result for him, the world was divided into two groups, two kinds of beliefs, animism and materialism. And he emphatically was on the side of animism. You have some very strange tastes. Go ahead. <laughs> well, what the book is, uh, he never completed it. In fact, he had 12 volumes when he died. And uh, it took a number of editors to reduce it to one volume. They apparently felt it was so important it had to be published. The importance of it is, of course, that it does collect... Uh, the thinking of a great many people of importance in English society who were totally opposed to the Industrial Revolution and to technology. Thomas Gray, the poet, spoke of demons at work. And the word pandemonium means pan, universal demons. And that's the world of the machine. As a result, Jennings' work is important because it shows how deeply the hatred of the machine prevailed in the world of the arts and in the world of theoretical scientists such as Darwin. And... Uh, for example, the uh, grandfather of Charles Darwin made this statement to a woman. My dear madam, you have but one complaint. It is one ladies are very subject to, and it is the worst of all complaints, and that is having a conscience. Do get rid of it with all speed. Few people have health or strength enough to keep such a luxury. For utility, I cannot call it. That was Erasmus Darwin. The book is full of quotations such as this, The Industrial Revolution is a Picture of Hell. And... Uh, a belief from beginning to end that uh, modern man had to overthrow 
the world of technology and of industry in order to find freedom. So while Pandemonium is a terrible book, a stupid book, written by a very stupid man, it is important. The other book by Sussman, Victorians and Machines, gives you additional evidence of this kind of thing. The world of art as against the world of technology and industry. The two as irreconcilable enemies. Here's an interesting quotation from Mill. I quote, The mere visible fruits of scientific progress in a wealthy society, the mechanical improvements, the steam engines, the railroads, carry the feeling of admiration for modern and disrespect for ancient times down even to the holy uneducated classes, unquote. In other words, how can you continue with your adoration of the Greeks when you have modern industry and technology producing the wonders and marvels that it does? This is the kind of thing that still continues. For example, uh, as the author points out, Sussman, when William Blake wrote about the dark satanic mills. You recall that line? Oh, yes. It was a fraud. It was a lie. The mills at that time were all run on water. There was no smoke put in the air. No vapor, nothing. It was just a way of damning them. And uh, Dickens really had a pretty decent childhood. He had to work for a while and he never forgave God or man for the fact that he had to work and uh, it gave him a lasting grudge. Uh, and he said, uh, the author says for Dickens, the machine usually works in the novel to symbolize the union of economic power with moral indifference, end of quote. Then uh, another statement uh, similar to that for Morris as for Ruskin. The criticism of society is implicit in the idea of art, unquote. And by society they both meant modern industrial technological society. Sussman also calls attention to uh, something I had not known. You remember Bellamy's Looking Backward and how popular it was. Yes. Well, the uh, members of the community of arts and culture hated Bellamy and hated the popularity of the book because while the book was a foolish one it looked to technology for great improvements in the century to come and to them technology represented the destruction of aristocracy and the men of art as representing aristocracy. Sussman says there were only two writers of any consequence who were favorable to industrial development and technology. And both towards the last began to change their thinking. One was H.G. Wells and the other was Rudyard Kipling. Wells began to despair of the future of humanity and Kipling after World War I with the death of his only son became generally pessimistic about everything so that uh, it was not just the machine it was history. So these two books tell us a great deal about why we have a problem we do today. What problem is that? The world of 
culture of art as being totally opposed to industry, to commerce, to capitalism, to the free market, to technology, regarding it as a monster, pan-demonianism or pan-demonism. Well, those are two awful books. And it irritates me to even hear the quotes, I'm sorry to say. Well, it irritated me to read them. <laughs> now, Dickens was really a very interesting writer. He really should have written more, for the, more directly for the theater than for literature. Mm -hmm. Because he really was a dramatist. All his characters were overdrawn. Yes. They were black and white and gray. But his observations of the fallacies and especially the weaknesses of people were very astute. And he also wrote about virtuous people as well as villainous people, which is very rarely done today. Because, as we all know, it's hard to write about goodness, and he succeeded. Mm -hmm. well, I would put Dickens in, in the very uh, top category. I'm fond of him, I should say, although I regret a great many things about Dickens and his opinions. Well, he wrote so much. Mm -hmm. But the argument against technology, in the first place the phrase industrial revolution was coined by Toynbee. It was coined by Toynbee's uncle. And it gives the impression that the machine appeared, that industry appeared, bing, out of the clouds, which it did not. It was a very slow and gradual development, almost invisible. Yes. And there was no revolution in that dramatic sense. The people who left the farms and the land of England and who went to work in the factories did not find the factories any worse to work in than the farms because they worked from sundown to sunup on the land. They worked under very brutal conditions and the factories were actually an improvement. Yes, that's very true. Now, the whole business of, of technology, what is technology? Technology is quite simply working people working and using tools and instruments. That's right. The, uh, the first person and one whom I do not admire to br bring out the fallacy of the whole ancient philosophic argument that words are more important than things was Bacon. Now, Bacon was a faggot and a pain in the neck, and I suppose that's one of the reasons he's so often regarded so highly. He himself never did anything scientific, but he talked a lot about how things should be scientific. And he did make a very interesting distinction between Aristotle, Plato, and the rest. And he said, they have misled mankind for centuries. He said, a good shoemaker would have been of a lot more value to the human race than those people. And I, I have, on that score, I'll agree with him. Now, I don't know why publishers keep printing this kind of nonsense when, for all I know, these books are written on word processors, when they themselves have automated presses, when no period in all history has been so interlarded between industry and the graphic arts as our own, we have, I think it was Doug Murray was telling me today that he considered the, the new developments in terms of computers as important as the wheel, as great an advance in human yes. progress as the wheel. Yes. It has enabled us to communicate, and not only to communicate, but to destroy the tyranny of geography. He said it will no longer be necessary in the future for people to live on top of one another in cities because they will be able to have a network of communication and small communities and there's plenty of room, as you know, in the world for yes. all the people in the world if we ever broke up this tremendous congestion of the cities. Uh, the difference in applied intelligence between what Murray had to say 
this afternoon, just in the course of an ordinary conversation, because we went down while I had a computer assembled and put together for me. It was almost like a tailored computer. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a brand name. They just took the various parts and asked me what I wanted to do with it, and they produced a machine, put a machine together that'll do what I want. And then those books. Though if I'm not really against, uh, in favor of book burning, but I have, I'm tempted. Well, let me make a distinction here. Uh, Jennings was totally against technology. Sussman, in his book, is dealing with the literary response to technology, and he's not in favor of what these writers were saying. So he is documenting their foolishness rather than approving of it. The writers he dealt with were Carlyle, Samuel Butler, Dickens, Ruskin, William Morris, H.G. Wells, and Rudyard Kipling. Well, of course, I always thought Wells was overboard in favor of modernity. And Wells is a, is a tra- classic case. He was more honest than most, at least in his autobiography at the end of his life. He said he gave it the title, A Mind at the End of Its Tether. Yes. And at least he faced up to the fact that he had gotten into a dead end. Yes. Every one of his stories, if you recall, had a tragic end. The War of the Worlds, you name it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the same thing was true of Hemingway. Hemingway never let a hero live. Mm-hmm. Never. And he himself was the epitome of the undeserved success. But H.G. Wells is spared not because of the machine, but because of man. So he was on the side of industry and technology. Well, so am I. sometime Fabian views. So am I in favor of technology. The more more comfortable they can make it, the better, as far as I'm concerned. I'm I'm not about to go back to a mule and a plow. Well, I have worked with a mule and a plow. <laughs> I, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> it's nothing to be prized. <laughs> well, the whole question of books is interesting. There is still a hangover in the United States among the men that reading books is a somewhat foolish thing to do. It's a waste of time. And uh, I had one fellow tell me that his wife reads. <laughs> I've heard that too. And and uh, I didn't say An anything. Indulgent statement. And I always figure that my silence to such comments earns me another star in heaven because <laughs> I think a number of things. And I have here a book, books that changed the world from the ancient times to the 20th century. It's a paperback. And I've had it on the shelf for quite some time, and I think there are a number of such books. It's not worth giving anybody any information about it because you can go and find five or six books of this type, and it depends upon the author as to which books they consider the most important. But he does say that there's a great variation. He says, for instance, in this man's mind, What is a book? He said, for instance, most people think of it as something thick, but Thomas Paine's Common Sense was a pamphlet. Mm -hmm. It had a tremendous effect. Thoreau wrote an essay on civil disobedience, which, as you know, is still being used for propagandistic purposes. And we have Machiavelli. Now, people don't read Machiavelli today. They don't understand him. Machiavelli's argument really was designed to help the political situation in Florence. Overall, he argued that the good of the community outweighed all individual rights. That's what it came down to. And that idea enabled the rulers of his day to forget about biblical limitations on power. And incidentally, that was the same idea that Adolf Hitler propounded in his system of the National Socialist. And that was, in Shakespeare's phrase, every man, instead of, you know, Shakespeare said at one point, every man owes God a death. But Hitler switched that to say every man owns, owes the state yeah. a death. And there's not much difference between Hitler on that score and Hegel. 
And Mein Kampf, therefore, goes into this fellow's lexicon of important books. And unless you read what these people thought and said, you really don't understand the world because none of their ideas have ever died. You hear them all the time. And I think that's what probably makes an important book from an unimportant book. And for that matter, why you bring up these arguments on the behalf of an artistic community, which the artistic community doesn't follow. These are men who are writing about art who are not, not part of art. These are like Bacon wrote about science without being a scientist. These fellows are writing about art without being artists. You ask an artist whether he does, does works for, without money and uh, just listen to what he tells you. But the fact is the greater majority of the people in the arts are anti-capitalistic. No, they're not. They're making money. They're capitalists themselves. Picasso died a very rich man. True, but that doesn't prevent them from following left-wing politics. They may follow left-wing politics and they may give the fashionable cant, but you just try to struggle over money in the world of art. It's covered with money. When I get together with other writers, I've never discussed literature yet. We discuss contracts, advances, and who does what. True, true. And it's true across the board. True. But they don't write in praise of capitalism. You said something about Bacon, which was very true, and in a book I read just recently, A. Rupert Hall, Henry Moore, Magic, Religion, and Experiment, uh, published by Basil Blackwell in England in 1990. He says this about Bacon. Philosophers, historians, and scientists have voiced skepticism concerning the value of Bacon's non-experiential picture of scientific research and thinking. Whether considered as a program for future endeavors or regarded as the basis for an account of what post-Baconian scientists have actually done, some such as Leibniz have found his claims to furnish a logic of scientific discovery absurd. Others, such as Liebig, have ridiculed Bacon for his utter ignorance of the real business of experimental science. Paolo Rossi has written that Bacon's Silva Silvarum, an incoherent natural history, highly esteemed in the 17th century, is no different from the magical texts of Delaporta and Cardano or those of the 17th century English hermetics and magicians John Dee and Robert Flood. This is why, uh, probably why Bacon's logic has been seen by so many scholars as a failure. One of these was Alexander Coiré, who poured scorn on the claim that it was Bacon who had called the scientific wits together, unquote. I couldn't agree more, and I'm very pleased to find myself in such intelligent company. <laughs> of course, the textbooks still portray that thief and homosexual, the yes. wretch, as though he were the father of science. I can't understand it. No. Well, they, uh, uh, it's, it's like uh, James Stewart, James I. Mm-hmm. One of the American scholars uh, said, uh, in reviewing my work on him, that I had been very sarcastic about his sexual proclivities and he said well after all it was a regal vice I never knew that I always thought it was wine, women and song (laughs) well an interesting thing and I won't deal with more any longer than this but uh, Henry Moore had quite a revulsion for Calvin he went into uh, occultism and magic, which was then closely related to mathematics, and Freemasonry, and he had a belief which he stated in so many words. He had no great use for Orthodox Christianity, but he said, God could not possibly reject him. Why not? (laughs) 
Oh, but uh, this, oh, he believed, of course, in uh, pre-existence and that sort of thing. Okay. But he was very telling in his view of science, what it should be. Mm. Science as control. Control over people. That was control the, over society. Well, that's that's the bad science. Yes. I had a conversation with a scientist named Whitby, big in the in the synthetic rubber industry, and I said, "You realize, Doctor Whitby, that the professors feel that uh, a scientist like you, who is working in industry, is not the real thing." that you should be theoretical, you should not be uh, bothered with production, innovation, distribution, that sort of thing. He said the purpose of science is to bring better products mm -hmm. to the world. Yes. The purpose of science, he said, is not to display your brains out of mm -hmm. sheer vanity. It's the social scientists who believe in control. And I don't think the social sciences are sciences. No, I don't either. No, if they were, we would have something to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. Yes. If they could figure out the mystery of mankind. Mm -hmm. Well, I have here a book that you know about, God and the Astronomers by Robert Jostrow. Oh, yes. And uh, it gives me great pleasure to quote from Jostrow. When an astronomer writes about God, he said, his colleagues assume he is either over the hill or going bonkers. However, I'm fascinated by some strange developments going in on astronomy, partly because of their religious implications and partly because of the peculiar reactions of my colleagues. Now, he goes on to say that the Big Bang Theory presupposes a beginning and he says, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens of the work of thine hands. And he says, No scientist can answer that question. We can never know whether the prime mover willed the world into being or whether the creative agent was one of the familiar forces of physics. And then later on in the book he says, The fact is, science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist has scaled the mountains of ignorance, about to conquer the highest peak, he finds himself greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> yes, that's a marvelous statement. I recall that. The, I think, most amusing thing about Jastrow's comment was that when he wrote this book, God and the Astronomers, they were all convinced that they had figured out that the world began, the universe began with a great explosion. Of course, they didn't ask the question of what happened before that, mm -hmm. who put the explosion together, what was the catalyst, or anything of that sort. Well, now the Big Bang Theory has been exploded yes. by further discoveries of the astronomers. So that for the first time in my lifetime, and I think in yours too, they have no theory whatever. Mm -hmm. And yet, I have yet to see any one of them get up and say, gentlemen, we do not know. Yes, yes. Book after book is coming out now that uh, is a devastating critique of Darwin. The contradictions, the absurdities, the dishonesties in his thinking. And yet nobody will say, let's drop the theory. Everyone associated with it, and it's in the beginnings, uh, uh, was... Uh, unworthy of being considered a serious thinker. What's wrong with saying you don't know? Yes. What's, what's wrong with telling the children and the students, we have not yet discovered all the mysteries of life, and we do not know. Mm -hmm. God knows. God knows, and we don't. Yes. Well, I'd like to turn to a book now that... Uh, was written by George Armstrong Kelly, Victims, Authority, and Terror, The Parallel Deaths of Dorlian, Custine, Bailey, and Malasherb, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 1982. It deals with the execution of these four men 
one of them a member of the royal family during the reign of terror. And uh, the book is very interesting because, uh, first of all, the French army was corrupt. It was overloaded with officers and generals. If you were a boy from an important family, you became a colonel almost at once. And a great many of uh, these men, the nobility and uh, the like, came to the United States to assist uh, Washington in the war against the British. This was uh, France's way of striking back at Britain for the French and Indian War defeat that they had suffered. One of the men, of course, was Custine, a general at the time. Now, these men were tremendously impressed by the United States. Uh, and with good reason. The orderliness of the country, the fact that uh, with the uh, revolt against Britain, courts and uh, police in effect had ceased to exist or function in many areas. And yet while there were problems, mainly debtors not paying debts, the American communities remained law-abiding. And then the Constitution, their admiration for that was immense. So these people operated under the illusion that if you had the right words on paper, you could create a good society. That's still a very familiar idea. Yes. And I wrote a position paper on it recently before reading this book in Paper We Trust. Yes. Now, they never took seriously the fact that this was a Christian country because for them... Christianity was nothing to be taken uh, seriously. As a result, they never understood why the United States functioned, why it was such an effective country. And so they believed all they had to do was to create a document and paradise would begin. Another known as the Democratic Party National Committee. <laughs> so... It's a very telling book in that respect and also a very uh, sad one because it uh, is so grim in the consequences of that stupid belief. Well, they thought so much of the people who cheered when their heads were lopped off. Yes, I'm going to come to that in a moment in another book. Uh, there's a quote from Rousseau which is a classic. Uh, Let us then begin by setting aside all the facts, for they are of no relevance to the question. <laughs> uh, that you don't hear normally in discussions of Rousseau, but then it would uh, tell us a little too much about Rousseau. Well, before leaving this subject of the French Revolution uh, and the terror, I want to turn briefly to a book by David I. Kurtzer, K-E-R-T-Z-E-R, Ritual, Politics, and Power, published by uh, Yale University Press in 1988. And he is not a Christian by any stretch of imagination. He, Kurtzer, is an anthropologist. So the book can be very annoying for that reason. But put in our language, what he is saying is that the symbols 
the ritual of the faith is an inescapable fact. Because ritual manifests what you believe. When you bow in worship, when you kneel or you bow your head, you are manifesting in action a faith. So that ritual is inescapable to life. Therefore, he says, for example, in France, it was a ritual when the king or the queen was dressed. When people passed the royal bedroom, they bowed. When the royal bedpan was carried, you bowed because this was the center of the world. Yes, well, the king was sacred. Yes. Then he comes to the point of the French Revolution and the reign of terror, which he says was ritual. Ritual. And he said it would have been a much simpler matter to execute these people and it would have created fewer international repercussions if they had been quietly disposed of in prison. But they had to be marched out. Crowds had to be present. If you wanted to maintain your social respectability, you had to be there when the guillotine fell. Now this is a very interesting point because and I've thought about it many times to come to no, no better conclusion than Lord Acton did. And that is that, you know, as he said, he said, among the smoke, every so often he said, the smoke seems to dissipate and one almost sees the hands of the managers and then everything becomes cloudy again. Yes. The thing that has always intrigued me about the reign of terror and the steps that were taken leading up to it was their deep psychological insight into the control of crowds. Yes. For the first time, the confessional was taken and was made public. And the confessional consisted of an attack against the confessional, an attack against the church, an attack against Christianity, using the methods of Christianity. Yes. So an open public confession was absolutely demanded. And then, of course, as you say, the inversion of all the symbols, where Notre Dame, the Cathedral of Paris, was turned into the Temple of Reason, and they put a prostitute up where the cardinal used to sit. Yes. And all of this was very much, there was very, there was a deep insight into human nature involved which does, is disproportionate with the mental caliber of the leaders of the revolution that we know. Neither uh, any of them, Robespierre uh, or any of his colleagues, had anything in their background excepting, I would say, a, a bit above average, but not yes. on the genius level. They, none of them ever propounded really stirring books or, or speeches. They were people of a level of which most of us are well familiar. And yet they introduced, they introduced methods which almost looked like it would take a civilization to conceive. And that's the great mystery of the French terror. I was writing uh, yesterday on the purge trials of Stalin and how in order to justify his regime he had to have these public confessions and the men were tortured and required to get up and make the most absurd confessions because it was a way of saying these are the sinners, the devils in our society, and we are the Holy Church. Based on the on the pattern of the French Revolution, yes. they, the uh, Kremlin even talked in terms of the revolution for many years, mm -hmm. for several generations. They would say there will be no Thermidor here. Yes. Thermidor being the period in which the Robespierre was unseated yes. and the terror came to an end. Yes. There will be no Thermidor here. They saw unending terror. That was the interesting thing in reading Lenin years and years ago, how much he echoed 
the terms of the French Revolution a self-conscious awareness. They taught it to the revolutionaries that they sent to other countries mm -hmm. as the pattern. It was the prototype. And these are mysteries which none of our historians seem to go into. What happened to the records of the actual revolution and the names of the people and the communes that came out of the neighborhoods of Paris to sit in judgment? All those records were taken from France in 1871, and they wound up by divers' roots in the hands of the Soviets. When the so and they're in the Kremlin, and those names would be interesting. Yes. Well, there's a very interesting related point that is hinted at in Kurtzer's book, and it is this. Uh, when the ritual becomes meaningless, you have empty forms, and the content is gone. Mm -hmm. And what is beginning to happen in politics today is that the ritual remains, but the meaning is virtually gone. Well, look at the vote. Think, yes. Look at the vote. Most people don't vote anymore. No. And they don't vote because they don't see where it makes any difference. Mm -hmm. The ritual is there. And we're yes. going around telling the world how much a vote means, mm -hmm. when the fact of the matter is we do not select the people for whom we vote. Yes. And if you don't select the people for whom you vote, what good mm -hmm. is a vote? Well, did you have something else? No, no. Go All right, ahead. well, I'd like to go on to a book that is an absolute delight. Barefoot in Arcadia, Memories of a More Innocent Era by Lewis B. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, the American historian. And this was published by the University of South Carolina Press, in 1974, and the printing I have is 1981, and I suspect it has been reprinted again and again since then. It describes his childhood. When was he born? He was born early in the century, mm -hmm. very early. Mm -hmm. And as he says, the era 1900 to 1920 except for a few things like trains and the early automobiles, Washington, Jefferson, and Adams could have walked into any American community and after an hour or two felt at home. It was still the same country. But since then, he says, it has changed dramatically. He says he wrote this book because he believed that too many writers like uh, Caldwell and Erskine had vilified the South. Mm, which they certainly did. And he said South Carolina, as he grew up in it, was a place of congenial relations between blacks and whites, and mostly godly people. He says, and I quote, I treasure the memory of my many boyhood friends, both white and black. One who lived to be nearly 100 had been given as a slave girl, aged 10, to my paternal grandmother on her wedding day. She was Harriet Graham, a woman of marvelous character and integrity, who married, raised a fine family of Pullman porters and tailors, and when she was widowed and alone, came back to live out her last years with us. After I became professionally concerned with history, I used to talk with Harriet about her youth. We cried when freedom came, she once told me. They made us move from your grandma's place to Mr. Fraser's. We had to eat ash cake, and none of us had ever anything except cake bread at your grandma's. We just sat there and cried. Thus the great adjustment came to one slave family. I once asked Harriet how my grandmother came to marry my grandfather Wright. It was this way, she explained. All the menfolk in your grandma's family had been killed in the war, and your grandpa was home wounded, and your grandma thought a wounded man was better than no man at all. 
Harriet's fatality count was accurate. All five of my grandmother Wright's brothers, all officers, had died in battle, and her father had perished of pneumonia on the Tennessee front. Then another very delightful episode, which uh, I think uh, you and I can appreciate, because there was a time when no gentleman was seen in the streets without a hat. True enough. And uh, says the, the the case of a South Carolina physician, a certain Dr. McLeod, exemplifies the desire to avoid conspicuousness. Dr. McLeod's medical skill was only equaled by his hot temper. When a patient swore at the doctor for dunning him for payment of a bill, the physician pursued him down the street, firing a revolver every few feet. As the doctor ran past a stranger, he snatched off the man's hat and clapped it on his own head. In due time, he was brought to trial, charged with assault and battery of a high and aggravated nature. One aspect of the case puzzled the judge. Dr. McLeod, will you tell the court why you snatched the stranger's hat, the judge asked? Why, Your Honor, the physician replied, I left my office hurriedly and was out, was without my hat, and no gentleman likes to be conspicuous in public. <laughs> Firing a gun at somebody was not conspicuous, but that was, uh, in his eyes. But, uh, he has a great deal more to say about a variety of things, all delightful. He was for some years uh, with the Huntington Library, and I believe he was in charge of it. At any rate, this I thought was good. During years of residence in San Marino, California, I frequently went to symphony concerts in the Hollywood Bowl with two friends whose musical talents were just short of professional. The great Klemperer was then conductor of the Los Angeles Symphony Orchestra, but not even he was able to satisfy my musical colleagues. They were always critical. The tempo had not been quite right, or some other technical flaw spoiled the interpretation for them. But I, reveling in the music of Mozart or Beethoven, sat back in my ignorance and enjoyed it all. Although I was unable to explain in the jargon that afflicts music critics why the concerts gave me such pleasure, I became a devotee of classical programs. The clash and discord of much modern music did not entertain me. My musical illiteracy was in a way a comfort. Technical knowledge might have given me a greater intellectual understanding but it is doubtful whether it would have increased my enjoyment. That's a very good point. Yes, isn't that good? That's an excellent point. Uh, you should go to a concert or the theater as a child. Yes. We had a, a critic in San Diego when I lived there who has the distinction, I think he's still there, I'm not sure. He has the distinction of having looked down his nose as some of the most famous performances by some of the best people that have ever yes, appeared in the city. I've, I've known that time. Here's another story from Wright. I quote, That very day, a wagon had run over the storekeeper's cat and had left an orphaned litter of kittens. As he pondered what to do with, a, with six blind kittens, he remembered that a hen had made a nest in an orange crate in the back of the store and had gone to setting. So he put the kittens under the hen to keep them warm. While he was cutting a wedge of cheese for the boy, he suggested, Son, go back there and see what my old hen has hatched. The boy directed to the back of the store, raised the hen, and took note of the kittens. But he says nothing. <laughs> well, son, what did you think of that hen's brood? The storekeeper asked. 
didn't think nothing much the word why but I know one thing I just hit my last egg <laughs> there are a great many stories like that in this book which really broke me up because uh, Wright is a good storyteller and in his writings he does manifest in his historiography a respect for the faith which is not common this story I like to uh, he says many stories illustrated the Negro's acceptance of things as they were and his tolerance of life as he found it a preacher asked to bury a citizen who had died outside the sanctity of the church found forgiveness easy he said he was not what you would call a good man because he never joined the church but he was a mighty respectable sinner <laughs> well Wright's uh, book is from beginning to end a delight I read it with uh, oh one more story I have to tell about this neighbor who periodically went to town with two of his hands and they would come back in a wagon a small narrow wagon with high sides with all the groceries and uh, he would after the shopping and they would do their own shopping these uh, hands and he would go off and drink with some of his friends and ride back horseback but this one evening he or one afternoon he got uh, too drunk so he fell off and was found dead drunk beside the road hands from his plantation homeward bound in a one-horse wagon picked him up and stowed him aboard driving into the backyard they told mrs hall that mr hall was asleep in the wagon let him stay there until the cool of the morning and he will come to for her crisp instructions before daybreak mr hall stirred groping first on one side and then on the other he touched wooden walls in both directions reaching up he felt the cold wooden seat of the wagon above his head suddenly realizing that he had met with a catastrophe he raised the house yelling, Help! Help! I've been buried alive! <laughs> well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.